Hi, this is Tom Compton. You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, we're going to talk about an obvious truth that's not very obvious in the U.S., and we're kind of reminded here at We Hold These Truths, we get our name from the Declaration of Independence, and in the second paragraph it says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so those are, those are kind of obvious, but we, we seem to kind of ignore that. And the obvious truth today that is not being mentioned in the media, it's, it's, we think it's pretty obvious, and at least Chuck is wanting to expose it once again. And the title of this piece by Chuck is U.S. War-Based Economy Exposed. I'm going to have Leslie read uh, parts of not the whole thing, but, and then we'll discuss it. U.S. War-Based Economy Exposed, posted by Charles E. Carlson, September 13, 2013. Wars are deadly adventures orchestrated to keep the domestic economy churning. The overwhelming public resistance to President Obama's campaign to bomb Syria is a most encouraging sign of a turning toward peace. America's grassroots war resistance has been slow in coming, long after many European politicians, goaded by their own constituencies, refused to play the U.S. administration's war game in Syria. Bombing a people as punishment for their leader is not new. In the desert of Kuwait in 1991, George Bush Sr. destroyed most of the Iraq army of 20-year-olds who were there because they needed jobs. We were falsely told Saddam Hussein raided a hospital in Kuwait City and stole the incubators, tossing the babies on the floor to die. There was not a word of truth in the story, which was later proved to be a paid Madison Avenue publicity promotion to induce the U.S. to destroy Kuwait's enemy. And our military and political leaders were in on the lie. It was Saddam Hussein we were supposed to be punishing in Iraq, and it was Osama bin Laden we were pursuing in Afghanistan. But a countless number of civilians and children's lives were destroyed. Long after doing so, Hussein and bin Laden were found and executed by the winners. Presidents George Bush, Clinton, G.W. Bush, and Barack Obama have all imprecated leaders who just happen to have something desirable under their turf. False wars have dragged on for 23 years against non-enemies incapable of real resistance or counterattack. What is the real reason for our serial wars against weak imaginary foes if it is not to punish evil and promote democracy? This is the question that no one answers or even asks. War, 
is an activity engaged in for the purpose of creating money. War is the only known excuse for printing limitless money, which then gets distributed through bankers and politicians to war industry businessmen and defense contractor friends, money that trickles down to us in the illusory disguise of prosperity. We fight unnecessary wars to keep the economy expanding. The answer is too simple, too direct, and too obviously evil for Americans who want to think there is a grain of decency in our leaders, who wants to believe that war-making is our country's unofficial national economic policy. The simple reason must be covered up at all costs. Our once great nation has degenerated into a war-based economy. Our economy cannot survive without the money generated by either preparing for war, fighting a war, or rebuilding after the cessation of war, which we now know will only be temporary. Understanding serial warfare is a eureka experience. Once discovered, one must decide whether to forget it or denounce it. It is axiomatic that when our war-making leaders are forced to stop bombing and looting, as just happened to President Obama, our economy will begin to crumble toward collapse and will stay collapsed unless we uproot the institutions that give us perpetual war for endless prosperity. I hope this conclusion is as self-evident to you as it is to me. In our film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1, we began with a bold statement that we made no effort to prove. A war scene was displayed, and the moderator begins with words I wrote many years ago. America is a war-based economy. Some have described being hooked on serial wars and the money printing inflation that funds wars as similar to being hooked on heroin. The comparison is not accurate, for most heroin users do not manufacture or sell it, making a handsome living by doing so. Most are victims who are kept poor by their habit. Those who promote war do profit from it, which is why they are hard to get out of our government. There is a war-making establishment that does very well on war. If it were not so, we would not have wars. In the 1950s, President Eisenhower referred to the war lobby as, quote, the military-industrial complex, unquote. He warned about it in his farewell speech, but he did not mention the most prosperous beneficiary, those who are bankers for the war-making establishment. A giant war weapons show called the Defense and Security Trade Show, DSEI, took place in London this week, featuring companies who make everything from tanks to high-tech surveillance equipment. Participants bemoaned the slowdown in Afghanistan and the reluctance of U.S. and U.K. to strike Syria. The Financial Times titled its September 11th coverage, 
The fence searches for bright spots. Corolla Hoyos reported that the industry is looking for new markets to replace the declining U.S. market, lamenting that it looks like a war in Syria is all but dead. She observed that defense companies' executives, supported by military brass, were busy, quote, hawking their wares in Asia and the Middle East because of the decline in war business in the U.S. As we close out hostilities in Iraq and throttle down in Afghanistan, unquote. She concluded correctly, quote, this, the most cyclical of industries, is once again on its way down, unquote. She is right, but will it fight back? It wants war in Syria badly. Those who wonder why our anti-war president was so bent on bombing can stop wondering. Obama may not have known this when he started his political career, but he knows now that if he is not to be known as the Depression president of the 21st century, he needs to start a series of limited actions that must lead to a big war in order to postpone the economic collapse that began in the first six or seven years of this millennium. Christians United for Israel has been surprisingly quiet in the matter of Syria, but this will not continue because the State of Israel and its lobby group, American-Israeli Public Affairs Council, APAC, as well as its church lobby group, Unity Coalition for Israel, UCFI, and its surrogate stepchild, Christians United for Israel, KUFI, will put on what APAC calls, quote, full court press, unquote, for the bombing of Syria. Israel has surely broken cover in openly asking Congress to demand a strike on Syria. According to one report, APAC officials will field some 250 Christian leaders and its activists will storm the halls of Capitol Hill to persuade lawmakers that Congress must adopt the war resolution or risk emboldening Iran's efforts to build a nuclear weapon. They are expected to lobby virtually every member of Congress. What must be done if we are to end our war-based economy? First, we must correct one grassroots supporter of wars in the Middle East, Christian Zionism. I refer you again to our 32-minute Christian Zionism, the tragedy and the turning, in which we state, quote, ours is a war-based economy, and the principal support for those wars comes from Christian Zionists. World Zionism demands that we bomb Israel's neighbors one by one, the independent Middle Eastern countries. Only Christian Zionists in the U.S. obey this rhetoric. We cannot change APAC and UCFI, but we can and must change our friends who are Christians supporting Zionism. They have as much to lose as we do, but they do not know it. Thank you, and thank you, Chuck. And for those listeners who have not watched our video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and Turning, it is now available for watching the 32-minute documentary free on our Vimeo site, and check for the link. 
Chuck, would you like to add some further comments? I, I wanted to mention, this is really powerful, how we have a very short memory in the body politic because going back to 1991 when we attacked, or it was actually, was it 1990? When did we actually attack uh, Iraq? It was January 1991. January 2016. Okay. But just three years before that, the U.S. was allied with Iraq and the U.K. against Iran. And we actually gave tactical information to Iraq that allowed them to use chemical weapons on Iranian soldiers. And there were thousands or tens of thousands of these soldiers that were killed. So we had duplicity there. So this really is very self-evident, but it is missed by people today just this last Sunday in my Sunday school class, somebody was asking us to pray for their grandson or somebody that was joining the military, and he had been offered a four-year full-boat scholarship for some athletics, but he gave that up and is going into the military. What kind of insanity is that? It's just we've been, been beat to death with this idea of, of patriotism. And that's most likely coming out of a uh, Christian Zionist-type church because I'm convinced that if research was really done, we'd find that the military has a disproportionate number of the sons and daughters of the Christian Zionist-leaning churches. But a little addition to this is the amazing event that Russia, this formerly the Soviet Union, of course, led by a KGB agent named Putin, is now the peacemaker in the Middle East. And the U.S. government is the war maker. And he is criticizing uh, our government uh, roundly for exactly that, for being bent on war all the time. It's an amazing development. Uh, we don't know about the sincerity <laughs> of the Russians and certainly Mr. Putin, but we do know it's a, a very humorous and, and uh paradoxical event and one of the most unusual ones in history perhaps. Craig, do you have any thoughts or comments you'd like to add? Sure. Eisenhower's farewell address was mentioned in the article, Chuck, and that was uh, delivered on January 17th, uh, 1961. And the uh, just like the, the quote of that goes like this, in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties, our democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that the security and liberty may prosper together. So you pretty much just wrapped that up, Chuck, in that whole article. And I'm also reminded of uh, Gore Bedal's book, Perpetual War for Perpetual Peace. That's uh, another one that just gets into the whole machinery of how uh, the economy is, is uh, motivated. One more thing I'd like to add. I don't know if you, you guys know uh, G. Edward Griffin's uh, book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. You know, as, as we yes. have been celebrating 100 years of the Federal Reserve. 
but it's it's now available in a uh, audio book, a 20, 20 CD audio book, and he goes through the the whole thing. One thing you mentioned about who who benefits from this, and you mentioned you mentioned the bankers, and uh, it's, you said that uh, war is the only excuse for printing limitless money. Well, it's not the only excuse because it's the excuse is to take the the wealth from the middle class and give it to the to the bankers and their cronies. And a creature from Jekyll Island gets all into this whole thing about why the perpetual wars, uh, how we pay for them, and it's 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 uh, it's really disgusting. And I think you're right that we start with uh, the Christian Zionists because they they don't know what they're supporting, and then hopefully we can get some more people, like the Sacramento peace activists that that we had last time when we were over there, to get them involved as well. Great. Thank you. Leslie, you had a comment? Craig, you mentioned uh, the creature from Jekyll Island. That took place like in the 20s or before that? About well, You didn't specify what time period that was. 1910 was... Yeah, right. The meeting took place 1910 on Jekyll Island with Paul Orberg and the, uh, all, the, all the big shots from the, the banking community. That, and it developed a banking cartel that basically took the economy away from the people and uh, put it in the hands of a banking cartel. And that's, that's where we lost our country. And then the Federal Reserve Act came on to, to finance that whole banking cartel. So the taxpayers become the, the lender of last resort as we have bailout upon bailout upon bailout. And in the meantime, the, uh, the bankers get rich with the interest. Uh, the, the, the other countries have the, the goods and the taxpayers get stuck with the bill. Absolutely, yes. Thank you. Well said. It's amazing how people don't want to recognize the obvious. I happened to see an interview on Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman interviewing Robert Reich. He was the Secretary of Labor mm-hmm. under Bill Clinton. And I would guess you'd call him a, a liberal. He was, I would say, a muddlehead liberal. He's a professor of economics at UC Berkeley. But he was talking about, you know, the need for minimum wages and so forth. But he danced around the issue when Amy asked about the Federal Reserve and who was going to be appointed to replace Bernanke. And he said, well, he really couldn't comment because Larry Summers, who's one of the candidates, and the other lady uh, were personal friends of him, as, as was Robert Rubin. So they're all in the same club. He failed to mention, you know, the, the obvious here that our problems, like Craig has pointed out, can be pointed at the Federal Reserve system that was very meticulously planned out as have been these wars that we've gotten into over the years. Yes, obviously a politician needs the way to fund a war when he gets into it, and when Woodrow Wilson got us into World War One. He didn't have to worry about where the money was coming from to pay for the huge military buildup that was that was uh, that was necessary, because the Federal Reserve Bank had been created under his administration, and no doubt he was just assured that all he had to do was go ahead and run the war, and that uh, the money would be available. So, Mr. Hansen is certainly correct that. The Federal Reserve is the implement that does pay for these wars. And if we didn't have a Federal Reserve system, no politician would dare to jump into a war he couldn't fund. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for everybody's input on there. Appreciate it, and thanks for listening. 
Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.